As we continue our walk into the, the Gospels and through the Gospels this year, we are walking through uh, the entire Bible. As you can see, uh, it's, it's laid out here for us. And, and we started in the laws, Pastor Jeffrey started us in laws, and, and we moved into the Gospels. We're kind of bouncing back and forth a little bit this year. And um, today, uh, we're going to take a look at Luke. And so if you have your Bible, and uh, I really hope you do, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it up to Luke. We'll be there the majority of the time this morning. Well, get us off on the, on the right foot with Luke as we begin to think about his perspective, the angle from which he wrote his gospel letter. First, Luke was uh, not a disciple of Jesus. Luke was a, a very loyal follower of the Apostle Paul. Um, believed by most that Luke was a physician. And Luke was likely a Gentile convert, which meant he was different because he was kind of an outsider who Jesus, because of the work of Jesus, he came and has freedom. Just like we we would be considered in Bible times, we would have been considered a Gentile because we were not Jew uh, by birth. Luke, Luke is part of uh, the first part. Of, of two pieces that are believed to be one, and the, the second piece that Luke wrote is titled Acts. And so if you were to read Luke and then just go right into Acts, you would see the progression of his, his writing and his thoughts and his understanding of the life and the work of Jesus that continued even on after uh, Jesus died and ascended to heaven. He, he wrote his letter with a couple of groups of people in mind. One is, is those who were believers in the way, in Jesus. And he, he wrote to, to strengthen their faith, to encourage them to live the life that they have in Jesus. And, and secondly, he wrote as a, as a way of taking on the attacks that were being made on Christianity. He wrote to speak to those who were unchristian. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And then as we look through his letter, we see some very common threads. He reveals for us Jesus' concern for the poor, for the oppressed. And he happens, appears to be very interested in the diversity of humanity. And so that begins to give a little, little bit of a background of the mindset of Luke, the author of today. And so as, as we go today, and as you think about Luke in the future, I hope that you'll consider it from that angle. If you look at Luke chapters 1 through 3, one of the things that you'll see is that there's a genealogy, the life of Christ, his, his background. And uh, how, many, how many in the room right now, how many have been, work, you're working this year to read through the Bible in one way or another from Genesis 1 all the way into the very end? How many, are, go ahead and raise your hand. See, that's great. 50%, maybe more, maybe somewhere right around there. That's phenomenal. Uh, I would encourage you when you do, when you finish a book, since you don't tweet, but you, I, bet you, I bet you Facebook, go on Facebook and update your status and just say, Leviticus, 
I got through that one last week. Woo! There's some good stuff in there. A couple of places. <laughs> Easy to read. But one of the things that uh, I recently read in uh, the Lent reading that I'm doing on version. It reminded me of something very powerful because whether it's, whether it's in the Old Testament or Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, genealogies, all this list of names, like as a kid I hated history because my memory's not that great on names and dates and places and stuff like that. And so it's really easy just to kind of to skip over all those, right? Would you be honest with me this morning? You do the same thing? At least some of the time. <laughs> it, it can be difficult. But as I was reading, author uh, N.T. Wright is uh, quite possibly the greatest New Testament scholar of our day. And he said that one thing about genealogies that changed my understanding, both of genealogy as well as all the lists of the laws, etc., of the Old Testament, is that in the genealogy, the genealogy tells us something about the person that we're reading about. For example, Jesus. If you're married, you uh, likely had this moment where you realized, oh boy, I get to meet the family. My now father-in-law, when he first saw me, said to my wife now, he's big. And that will be remembered forever. But as you get married or, or maybe even before, and you get to know somebody, and then you meet the family, and then you begin to hear the family stories. And you begin to learn some things maybe you wish you never had learned about your spouse's family. But it also becomes very rich and deeper, and you begin to understand even your spouse or a friend on a much greater level. And so as you read your Bible and as you come across a genealogy, a list of names of somebody's familial background, next time consider that it's more than just a list of names. But to those who were originally written to, it tells a story much deeper than we might naturally think of. And we can find something very powerful in learning and getting to know what shapes those that we love, or as we read the Bible, what shapes this person, Jesus, and understanding his family. As we continue on, we get to where Jesus begins to teach. He goes through the temptation and the desert, but then we get to the teaching, and there's something very significant that we understand about Jesus in his teaching, and, and we see it, it begins in Isaiah chapter 61. Actually, it begins in Luke chapter 4, but Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And so whether you want to go to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, 
or whether you would want to turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 18, you, you would see the same thing. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. I, I'm reading from Luke, but what we have here is Isaiah. You'll see how similar it is. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you see here this list of, of people that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the one, and these are the people who I have come for, the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. I wonder this morning who these people might be. Who, who are the poor? Who, who's imprisoned? Who can't see? Who has the world or groups of individuals oppressed? Ultimately, I believe that much like us, they are people who need who are needing to DTR their relationship with the Lord. They need to define the relationship. And I wonder if this morning, if these people might be you or me or us, might we be, like in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, might we today be? Is there any chance you might be poor, imprisoned, blind, or oppressed? If we're going to define the relationship The way I see it, there's three, maybe, maybe more, but three different people or groups of people that might try to define who we are, who, what our relationship is with God. One, first, God does, and we're going to look at that. God says, this is who you are. Other people do it too, don't they? Other people tell you who you are. And then, and then we do it to ourselves, don't we? I mean, you and I, we, we tell ourselves, I, I'm this, I'm that, I, I'm terrible at this, I'm, I'm a no good, or I'm too good. We, we tell ourselves those kinds of things all the time, don't we? And even in our relationship with Jesus, we'll tell ourselves, I don't deserve him. Or maybe you think, pretty good guy. I do deserve him. This morning, I want us to consider these three different definitions. 
But first, if we're going to do this, and I want us to begin with who God is. And who God says we are. And so that begs the question, well, who is God? And just briefly, because we have kids stuff to get to this morning, and, and, and really we could be on this forever and ever, and that's kind of why we come back. God's Word tells us that He is love. God is love. And we see that the way He guided the Israelites through the, through the Old Testament that, we're, that many of us are reading right now, in that long journey of nagging, you know, pitiful, sometimes, people. And we see that in the life of Jesus as God Himself becomes human. And He interacts and He understands us fully. God is love. The other side of it is that as we read God's Word, and especially as we get deeper into the Old Testament, it's easy to understand this. God is a God of wrath. But not the kind of wrath that we think of with an abusive, alcoholic father. That's not wrath. That's anger. Wrath, as it is defined in the Bible, is slow. The judgment is slow to come. And it, and it happens only in part of God's love. We understand that, that God is selfless. He gave up Himself, put Himself on the cross because of His love for us. If, us, if, God, if God were simply selfish, wanting it all His way just because He could have it His way, that, that wouldn't be a God I would want to follow. But He gave of Himself. God is selfless. But He is also selfish. Because he says, it will be my way. And only because God is God can he do that. If, if God reported to anyone else, it would not be okay if he was selfish. Does that make sense? That one, that's hard to get for people. Only because he is holy and right and just, only because he alone is God, could he say, it will be my way. So God is holy. He is set apart. There is none like him. He is just. He has expectations, requirements. Because as we'll be reminded, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that we were created in His image. To be like Him. The great thing about this God is He desires a relationship with us. And His understanding of relationship is different than often ours are 
especially in our time today. When God says, hey, I want a relationship with you, it looks more like what he did all throughout the Bible when he took Moses up on the mountain and said, hey, Moses, this is my covenant. I'm giving it to you. Now take it and share it with the Israelites, but then your responsibility is to take it and share it with the rest of the world. We understand relationships as contracts today. And a contract, if, if someone doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, the deal's over and you move on. And we see that in relationships all the time. And you understand it in the work world. It's a way of functioning. But Jesus doesn't going to jump ship on you when you screw up. When you don't live up to. Because he says, even if you screw up and fail miserably, I will be your God. So we have to understand who God says we are. N.T. Wright, he's just an amazing, deep writer. He's one of those that, that sometimes I have to read, like, paragraphs twice, which is kind of fun sometimes. Last time I spoke, at least I think it was the last time, it was a long time ago, I talked about how N.T. Wright helps us understand that as God in Genesis says that we are to be priest and ruler. That it's our responsibility as given in Genesis to oversee how, the, how creation functions. To care for it. To tend it. And it's also our responsibility to offer praise and worship to God. And so as we govern creation, we act as ruler. We act on behalf of God. And as we send praise and glory to God through how we do that, that we act as priest. But others attempt to define our relationship with God as well. Have you ever been called a hypocrite? I mean, it's really easy. And, and, and the reality is there are hypocrites probably in this room. But it's but it's really easy to be defined a hypocrite when you say you believe something, but you don't live up to it in your actions. And while that may be being a hypocrite, I believe for some, it is just the working out of your faith. That you truly do believe, and you truly do try, but in your, our humanness, we fail. The Bible says in John chapter 13 that people will define us by our love. They will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And uh, so I wonder, if, I wonder if people 
around you defined you that way. We can go the complete opposite end of the spectrum. In Luke chapter 6, it says that they will call us evil. Thinking that's a nice one to be called. In verse 22 and 23, blessed are you when men hate you. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. Not just because you're a loser. No, 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 no. Because of the Son of Man. Jesus even continues on and says, Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. That's, uh, that's not something that we naturally tend to think to do when somebody says, you're a jerk. Or, you're a hater because you don't think the way I do. And there are certainly those who call themselves Christians who are haters and they don't get it. But they will call us evil because of how boldly we stand, how closely we walk with Jesus Christ. And then there's this other reality that we continually are defining our relationship with God in our own ways. And I want to look at a couple of passages this morning. In the Bible, beginning at Luke chapter 7, two stories. Verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The, the, the alabaster jar, it, it's believed that it would, have, it would have been kind of a tall, I, I'm just, I don't drink this stuff, but I'm thinking it, it looked a little bit like a, a wine bottle. Kind of similar. It would have been tall, would have had a neck, it would have been corked. You don't want expensive perfume to leak out. And in order to open it, you had to break it. You break the top off of it. Perfumes that would have been in this, in that day could have been used for different things because they didn't have showers back then. Not man-made ones anyway. And so the perfume is used much like we might use deodorant today. To cover up the skunk. 
It was also used as medicine. And then there's this really beautiful picture that if we read, and, and as you have been in Leviticus and even uh, probably into Numbers, and, and there's this explanation of all that the priest went through, especially the high priest, before he could enter the tabernacle. And one of the big things was perfume. It would anoint the body. And, and so this liquid that was in this alabaster jar could serve in all those many ways. And it says that as she stood behind Jesus, as he was reclining at the table, and we recline like this, lazy boy, at the table, they would kind of lean and, and the feet would be behind. And so she would be able to come up behind Jesus without interrupting and begin to wash his feet. And Jesus is gathered with the Pharisees that are there in the, in the building, in the house. And it says she comes up behind them and she's weeping. Weeping is not a simple tear falling from the eye. How many tears do you think fall from your face when you weep? How passionate, how does your body convulse when you weep? You don't weep over little things. But the Scriptures tells us she was at his feet weeping. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. And they couldn't even, it wasn't even right that she was there in the same place with him. Jesus answered him. The guy never speaks out loud. Jesus senses the attitude. Says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. He says, sure, tell me, teacher. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was a norm, a standard of the day, a sign of respect, honor, and care. You didn't do that. You did not give me a kiss which was a standard welcome, the cheek kiss, you know, the strange one for most of us white people. So free. <laughs> but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Not the cheek, the feet. You did not put oil on my head. 
but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins, they're forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, ignoring the the men, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you read that passage, she went over the top in every way in her love for God. And if you read the passage, the guy who should have known better didn't do anything he should have. He brought Jesus in. So let's find out about this guy. And treated him like trash the whole time he was in. Turn with me to Luke 14. Beginning at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not... What's the word there? Come on. What is it? Hate. His father... His mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That that doesn't sound like a, a loving Jesus, does it? I mean, do you, do you want to hate your family in order to follow Jesus? The problem is most of us don't understand the context here at all. I have this friend when he had done his research and found that beyond a shadow of a doubt, he believed that God was God and that Jesus was God, Lord and Savior. His family uh, thought he hated them because He didn't grow up in a home that was uh, warm to Christians. And what Jesus is saying here is not, you will literally hate them. What Jesus is saying here is your decision to leave their home, their way of functioning, their way of thinking and believing to follow me, That will be so deep inside of you that they will believe that you must hate them. Why would you turn your back on them? Why would you turn your back on their God? And so Jesus is saying, you may have to part ways with the way your family does things in order to completely follow me. He continues, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me 
cannot be my disciples. And I don't remember if it was last week or two weeks ago, Pastor Jeffrey talked about that. That in that day it would be understood in, in this term, dead man walking. So I won't spend more time there. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will not or will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. We have done lots of projects around the church over the last year or so. The women, hopefully, you like the latest one. If not, don't tell me because I'll be really mad. <laughs> um, but we're doing it without any debt. Project by project. That's why the carpet looks so awful with the paint colors. And that's why there's holes in the carpet. Because we said we're not going to go into debt to do it. Or suppose a king, verse 31, is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other still a long way off will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. I don't remember how many years ago it was now. But we used this passage to be the framework of winter retreat. It was a long time ago, but it is still really, really fresh on Melissa Meek's mind is what I understand. Uh, I understand she really didn't like that retreat at all. At least that's what her husband keeps telling me. The cost of being a disciple, we, we titled the weekend, Is It, just following Jesus, Is It Worth It? And so we go and uh, we go on this retreat, same place teens are going, they just were at a few weeks ago, one of the most beautiful places in Texas. And uh, the idea was, along the way, all weekend long, that the response to every message, instead of being an altar call or something like that, I had this great idea that, well, the Scripture calls us to give up something, to, 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 to lay it aside in our pursuit of Christ. And whether it's family or things, I said, what if, after every message, we ask the kids, and, and us as adults too, which this is the part that got me into trouble. If, if Thanks. <laughs> if the response is that we give up something. And, and so we got large trash bags. And the idea was, and we put a name, every student had a trash bag, and we kept the trash bags. And, and they would bring their stuff, and they would put it in the trash bag. Every, so, like, by the end of the weekend, when it was time to leave, well, the last night, all they had really was 
the clothes on their back. No sleeping bag, no pillow, nothing. That, that was the idea. And, and so it was going wonderful. It, it really was. It, it, kids were bringing their things. They were putting them into the bag. Those, we let them choose. You didn't say you have to. You know, we weren't like cruel like that. We said, hey, if you want to do this as like a, as a way to like symbolize the movement in your heart closer to God, then, then, then great. And, and so we, we, we by the, we're getting all this. I mean, it's, it's filling up. The problem is, on the last full day there that morning, it was really cold that year, if I remember right. <laughs> and the, the, the campground people come to us and say uh, two problems, flooding and winter storm, which everywhere but around here means ice and lots of it. And when your road out of your campsite is a river that doesn't go well, and, and so they made us leave early. And we came back here. Of course, the kids thought, all right, all nighter. And all of us adults are like, heck no. You know, we're sleeping. And, and so the last night, the response was to give up your sleeping bag. And so we slept here in the building. The girls upstairs, the boys downstairs. We slept without sleeping bags. All we had were the clothes that were on us, which meant we needed this lady to come and put some perfume on some of the middle school boys. But we were really forced. It's almost like God was being funny with us. Because we were going to go through these motions and hope that the teens, it would be really significant for them. Hey, would you give up everything to follow Jesus? It's cool, man. And then God's like, I'm going to see if you're willing to. I'm going to throw a winter storm at you. I'm going to upset the whole weekend. I'm going to make it a weekend you'll never forget, not because of what you gave up, but because of everything involved. Are you really willing to do it? And I remember sleeping on a floor where our children meet on Wednesday nights. And I was next to a window that had a crack in it. And all night long, I didn't know there was a crack in it. And it was cold. And it was almost worth it. No, it was worth it. It's one that, that will never be forgotten. It's a moment that will never be forgotten, certainly by the adults. They'll never let me forget what I made them do. But it was a whole weekend of, is it worth it? Count the cost. Is it worth it to, to hate your family? Is it worth it to give up? Is it worth it to count ahead of time and make sure that you're ready? And, and then... Then there was this project in an attempt to make all the women in the room happy this morning that there were uh, a handful of people that spent over 15 hours here last night, yesterday, to make a bathroom ready to go. Now there's... Uh, 
about four or five, about half a dozen of us that left after 11 o'clock last night. We hope you like it. And if you don't, don't tell me because I'm not, I'm not going to be sympathetic to you. Not today anyway. And, and you know, we, we sent out these huge requests. We need help. We sent it out for like a month. We had about a half a dozen people show up. And so for the people that were here yesterday, we're all going, I'm not sure it was worth it. Randy's filling it. You know, Lonnie, man. It's a good thing he wasn't on patrol last night after we finished. People get away with a lot of things. See, we live in a world that wants to define its relationship with God based on the verse John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we like that so much that when we go to Texans games, it's the sign you see in the stands. We like that, don't we? It makes us feel good. But nobody goes to a Texans game and holds up a sign for Luke 9, 23. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You probably will never, ever see that at a Texans game. Because that's not attractive to fans. That may not be attractive to you this morning. Kyle Eidelman wrote this book, Not a Fan. I like it because all the letters are lowercase. <laughs> and if you've ever got an email from me, it makes a whole lot of sense. And in it, He says, there is no believing without following. James chapter 2 says the same thing to us. What good? what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. All right, show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is a God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. For the sake of time, I won't continue to read that. Instead, I'd rather read a story from the book, not a fan. There'll be copies in the lobby. If you would like to pick one up after the service, Matt will give you a little more information at the end. 
He says in the book, Millard Fuller tells of becoming a millionaire by the age of 29. Not bad. He had, he says, bought his wife everything she could possibly want. But one day he came home to a note that announced she had left him. Millard went after her. He found her on a Saturday night in a hotel in New York City. They talked into the wee hours of the morning as she poured out her heart and made him see that the things that our society says are supposed to be so satisfying had left her cold. Her heart was empty and her spirit was burned out. She was dead inside and she wanted to live again. Kneeling at the bedside in that hotel room, Millard and Linda decided to sell everything they had and dedicate themselves to serving poor people. The next day being Sunday, they found the nearest church, went there to worship and thank God for their new beginning. They shared with the minister and told him about what had happened to them and the decision they had made. Ironically, the minister told them that such a radical decision was not really necessary. Miller said, he told us that it was not necessary to give up everything. He just didn't understand that we weren't giving up money and the things that money could buy. We were giving up, period. Millard and Linda started an organization you're probably familiar with, Habitat for Humanity. That's what the story of the rich young ruler is really about. It's not just about giving up money and the things that money can buy. It's about giving up, period. That's what it means to deny yourself and follow Christ. Last night, the band played a fundraiser for our local area, Habitat for Humanity, that we've partnered with this last year, provided a home for a single mother and her family. This morning, let me ask you a couple of questions. How have you defined your relationship with God? Have you defined it like Jesus would? Have you thrown that aside and defined it the way others try to? Have you tried to do it in a way that will make you happy and content? You know, pick the John 3.16, but not the Luke 9.23. Those kinds of ways. Jesus says in Luke 14 that we have to die to self. That we can't be Lord if we call him Lord. Kyle Eidelman in the book suggests people who are dead don't seem to care very much what other people think of them. And I think I would add to that. People who are dead only care what God thinks of them. When life is over, that's all that will matter. Why should it be any different today? Let me ask you, what grips you today? What grips you? What has a hold on you today? Is it where you define the relationship? Oh, you know, God, I, I got you right here, buddy. Well, God, you know, back over here. Stay, stay there, you know. I say that to my dog all the time. Why would I say that to God? Is it when you'll define the relationship? You know, God, I really, I really want to, to uh, I really 
I really want to do this first. I, I really want to, I want to live really worldly for just a little while longer. But before I die, you know, I'll, I'll do that thing. I'll, I'll give it up. I'll, you know, I just, if I can get through high school, when I get to college, I'll change everything. And, and I'll really follow you, God. God, God, if I can just if I could just climb to this point on my on the ladder at work, then it's yours. I won't even get, I'll give you fifteen percent, not ten percent. God, if I get the title, or or if I get if I can get that house, and that's nice, or if I can get that vehicle that I that I uh, know is going to start every time I turn the key, then. Then God. Or is it the circumstances, the family life? God, if, if I, you know, I really need to take care. And, and when this is, when I got my family, you know, when I got my kids behaving properly in one week or less, then, then God, then I'll let you define the relationship the way you want. But until, until, until Ethan calms down, it just, whoo, the boy is wild. And, and once I get him calmed down, then, then, then I'll give you more time. Or one, once my baby is sleeping through the night for a month, straight, and I've begun to recover, uh, th- then, then, then God, then, then, I'll, then I'll think about reading the Bible. Then I'll think about living out the Bible. Jesus speaks to all three of those. Luke chapter 9. very end of the chapter. They were walking along the road. The man said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus thinks in his mind, man, that's awesome. And he says, foxes and holes, foxes have holes, Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. See, this guy, his father wasn't sick, wasn't on his deathbed. He just didn't want to leave dad's home. When dad died at some point in the future, then God, then I'll follow you. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, what this guy wanted to do was go say, goodbye, Mom, goodbye, Dad, 
brothers, goodbye. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this guy, Jesus. And the reason Jesus said no is because if he went back, the family would have said, don't go. Wait. Do you hate us? And he might have changed his mind because he had just met Jesus. He didn't know him enough to fully love him and be willing to lay down his life to carry the cross. Who are you? And who's defining your relationship with God today? Is your relationship with God God defined on His ways, His standards? Is it on others? If you're like any of these who say, yeah, you know, later when it's convenient, that's that's not what God desires. Can Can I tell you something this morning? Hesitation is still disobedience. So if you're here today saying, I'm going to give God what He wants later. That's no worse than saying, God, forget you. You know, we know the disciples by their names because they said, okay, God, I will be a follower of you. The reason we don't know these others that we've read this morning is because they were simply fans. And so this morning, the question that Luke has for us is the final fill in the blank. And you're the one that has to fill it in. Can you say, I am a follower? Or can you say, I am a fan? Fans, like the video before I got up, come and go. When Jesus was doing great and amazing things, right? And when Jesus got bold and started calling people out, no one wanted anything to do with that. And when I look around the body called Houston First Church of the Nazarene. I see followers. But way more than God would love, I see fans. What are you? Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, as we respond and in prayer, through singing, through giving of, our, giving of your tithes and our offerings. Uh, God, I wonder if there's anyone in the room 
who would love you enough to say, I've been a fan. But I want to be a follower. If you're here this morning, no one's looking around, just, just look up at me. If you'd say, you know what? When I walked in the room this morning, I was content being a fan. I was content loving God when, when things went good for me. But that's not good enough. And I recognize that, and I, I've got to do different. If you're here this morning, just look up at me so I can recognize you and, and pray for you. See you. See you. I see you. I see you. I see you. Still looking this morning. God, you, you gave everything. You carried your cross. Lord, I pray that there would be no fans in this room. Because fans don't do anything for the kingdom of God and the way the world sees it. Father God, I just pray. As tired as I am. And as human as I am. That those in the room with me this morning who might feel very similar. That today they would take a step forward in their faith, their relationship with you. Begin to define the relationship the way you would, but not the way they're used to. God, you'll be glorified. You'll be honored. We pray these things in Jesus' name. As you're here this morning, we encourage you to come pray. Take time. Sing if you want. Kneel if you want. Find the altar if you want. Someone will pray with you. I promise you that. Someone will come along and say, how can I pray with you? If you need to take that step today, if you need to become a follower, if you've been a fan and that's not good enough and you realize that now, I encourage you to come as we continue to worship.